Okay, so we can start. So good afternoon. So we are very happy for, for this session, the seventh uh, session of our work, uh, workshop, Acts of Citizenship, to host uh, Shuri de Molavi. So she's, uh, she will present some theoretical points, mostly on her book, uh, Stateless Citizenship, which was issued in 2013, uh, on Palestinian Arab citizens of, uh, of Israel. So Shuri de Molavi is a doctoral PhD student at uh, York University in Canada, and she's also currently a visiting professor at, at Coast Guard University. And she's a lawyer by training, and uh, she has been working here in Palestine in civil society organization um, for, for quite a while, yes. um, seven to ten years. And so she will be presenting uh, her book, which is um, coming out of a research of a master uh, thesis uh, research, uh, where she focuses on the notion of statelessness, statelessness uh, concerning uh, Israeli-Palestinians uh, um, in Israel. I would never say Israeli-Palestinians, no, no. but you know. <laughs> no, for that I didn't say it. I, was, no, no. I, I started, but then I put it the other way. <laughs> um, okay, thanks everyone for coming. Thank you for French Institute for organizing this and for Palestine, Institute for Palestine Studies for hosting it. I'm very happy to be here. Um, today's discussion will be building off of a presentation I gave in Ramallah two days ago. Um, which was more of a general account of um, what it is that sets the Israeli citizenship regime apart from other citizenship regimes. So what is it about the incorporation regime in Israel that, that places it apart from other so-called liberal democratic regimes in, in Europe? Because this is often the liberal Zionist argument. Um, uh, this presentation will be more on chapter 6 of the text, which was... I believe made available to people for today, um, which is titled The Anatomy of Stateless Citizenship. And in this chapter, I go through um, three major pillars that I think hold up the stateless citizenship of Palestinians inside Israel. Um, and they, I'll go through them in a moment. But I'll also tell you that the research that I did for this book, um, it's the culmination of nine years of research I've done mainly in Haifa with Mada al-Karmel, um, but also with Adala and with Itija when Amir Makul was the, uh, was the director. And part of his sort of arrest and the, the incidents affecting him and what that says about Palestinian citizenship is also in the, in the text. Now, rather than trying to cover all of the points that I make in the chapter, what, um, what I will try to do is to, is to draw you a kind of picture of these three pillars uh, that are at play in stateless citizenship. And to this end, what I will try to do is um, go through each of them. So the first one is exclusive inclusion. The second one is a perpetual state of emergency. And the last one is coexistence without existence. Um, and with this um, workshop, what I really would like us to try to do is to give a, get a broader account of the social, political, legal, and uh, conceptual situation of Palestinian citizens in the country. And also to try to point to ways that the concept of stateless citizenship, which I have formed, um, can be a useful way of understanding how Palestinian citizenship in the country came to embody its existing exclusionary dynamics. So how is it that the citizenship is set up in, in the way that it is today? 
as I mentioned on Tuesday, uh, in today's Israel, uh, on Monday, in today's Israel, one-fifth of its citizen population is Palestinian Arab. And despite the respective social and economic differences that exist in the community, um, the situation of the community is, at best, paradoxical. On the one hand, Palestinian citizens are denied national membership as non-Jews, um, and state identification, because Israel's legal, political, and social self-definition is a state for the Jewish people. On the other hand, they're also distanced from the rest of the Palestinian population through the same legal, social, and political dimension. Today, as it stands, the state of Israel continues to deny the existence of the Palestinian population, its citizenry, as an indigenous group, as a national group, or even as a national minority. And far from any kind of integration into the Israeli regime, the Palestinian citizens today exist in a paradoxical situation, whereas Arab citizens of a Jewish state, they are both inside and outside, both host and guest, both citizen and stateless. Now, I don't want to repeat too much of what I said uh, on Monday, but part of where our discussions left off was looking at how scholarship um, today that's coming out from 48 looks at Palestinian citizens. And what I explained was that for the most part, the way that the citizenship community is approached is by looking at what it is that's missing from their citizenship. So listing all of the discriminatory laws, and there are many racist laws that, that target the community, listing all of the limitations to the citizenship. So what's missing from citizenship rights? This is the way that most scholars have been looking um, at the community. And for, I think, and I think many of us think in Haifa, that this is um, leaving out an important and elemental part of the answer to how it came to embody the existing exclusionary dynamics. And I think this is what uh, the paradigm of stateless citizenship seeks to point out. And it's basically as follows, that the means, the actual medium through which by which and from which marginalized Palestinian existence is maintained in Israel is citizenship itself. So key to the project of stateless citizenship is to reveal that the Arab lack of a genuine interaction with the Jewish state is a condition, hello, is a condition, this lack of interaction is a condition that is brought about precisely via their bestowal of citizenship. So it's the very provision of citizenship, the actual inclusion into the Israeli incorporation regime or citizenship regime that produces these internal contradictions and paradoxes that are embedded in any kind of Arab membership with the Israeli political and social system. As I explain in this chapter, had the Arabs in Israel, the, the forgotten Palestinians of 48, who remained on their uh, sort of historical lands, if they had not been granted Israeli citizenship, the discussion to, a discussion about, and the approach to the community would have been very different. In such a situation, the relationship of these Arabs with uh, the Israeli citizenship regime would perhaps have been characterized at best as a strict exclusion. So they would have been outside and forever peripheral to the Israeli um, citizenship setup. Of course, at a very elemental level, Palestinian nation as a whole, whether citizens or non-citizens of any state, are as, as Palestinians a stateless people. 
But the statelessness of other parts of the Palestinian nation corresponds to what we would call an inclusive exclusion. Now, inclusive exclusion, and I'm going to explain this in a bit, I do in the chapter, is a relationship that's present in every single citizenship regime in the world. Inclusive exclusion is when we have refugees or other non-citizens who are included in a citizenship regime, but through their exclusion. So from the margins of, of citizenship, which means that we need non-state people, we need non-citizens on the margins so that we can define ourselves against them. In, in that sense, they're included in the regime, but they're excluded insofar as they're non-citizens. Now, this is not the case when it comes to the statelessness of Palestinians in Israel. Their state, statelessness differs both conceptually and substantively from the rest of the Palestinian nation. And this is where the concept of stateless citizenship can become useful for us for understanding the level, levels and layers of non-existence and non-representation um, to which Palestinians are subjected in the country. It's the provision of citizenship, as I said, the very inclusion into the Israeli citizenship regime that creates these inherent contradictions and paradoxes that I go through in the text, and some of which I mentioned on Monday. So unlike refugees, for example, it's not through their exclusion that they're included. It's the opposite. It is through the granting of Israeli citizenship that they're deemed stateless. It is through inclusion within the regime that they're excluded. And as you read, the chapter plays a bit with the two relations of exclusive inclusion and inclusive exclusion to explain how the statelessness of this uh, community in Israel differs from the rest of the Palestinian nation. Now, part of the project also is to say that they are Palestinians like the rest of the Palestinian nation. They are stateless like the rest of the Palestinian nation, but their statelessness is one that's functioning within a citizenship regime, which is, which is really what we need to make sense of. But all in all, the concept of exclusive inclusion, which is what I call the first pillar of stateless citizenship, emphasizes that they are not denationalized. You know, we don't have the classical, and to give a very extreme example, fascist model where Jews were denationalized, their citizenship was taken from them, and then they were sent to the death camps, right? So Palestinian citizens are not denationalized. They're not stripped of their Israeli citizenship. There is, they don't exist outside of the law, and there's no suspension of the validity of the legal and political order. It's the reverse. Because they are recognized as Israeli citizens, international and domestic laws apply, and they have limited access to Israeli civic institutions, thereby making their relation to the state that of an exclusive inclusion an exclusion that is formed through their very inclusion into citizenship. Now importantly, exclusive inclusion focuses our analytical gaze on the Israeli regime's use of citizenship to capture the population into a condition of statelessness. The modern paradigm of citizenship, now citizenship is traditionally a tool for inclusion, a tool for inclusion into state representation, this paradigm is placed on its head. What Israel does is that it inverts the classical relation of exception in any kind of liberal citizenship regime. So it's not that you're excluded from the citizenship regime that you then lose rights. It's, it's actually when you're included as a non-Jew into this regime. Because of this, and as I explained in the chapter, the metaphor of the border versus, say, the metaphor of the camp 
the border becomes a much more useful metaphor for us for understanding how Arab exclusion in Israel, inside Israel, so the exclusion of Arab citizens in Israel functions. Indeed, the metaphor of the border is more applicable to Arab citizens than the metaphor of the camp. The stateless citizenship or the exclusive inclusion of Arabs in Israel is reflected in uh, Mark Salter, who's a theorist that I use, his detailed account of the experience of what he calls the neurotic citizen uh, at the border examination. And what he does in his work is that he looks at the way the border functions, the way that the citizen has to assume the state. And he says that the border has what he calls an embedded confessionary complex, right? Where you, when you're at the border, you feel like you're almost sitting in front of a priest having to confess all of your, all of your sins, right? Um, this embedded complex, confessionary complex, is faced by the citizen at the border. And Salter tells us, as I wrote in the text, that, quote, border agents and state bureaucrats, they play a critical role in determining when, how, and on whose bodies the border will be performed. So we perform the border with our bodies. Border examinations compel citizens, they force citizens, all citizens, to perform both their citizenship and the sovereignty of the state. And this places them in an indefinite state of exception. As a citizen, when you become a part of the body of the nation, you're transformed into a subject, a subject that is to be managed, directed, evaluated, and contained. And here, the border inspection of the citizen becomes itself a main institution of citizenship. So part of the institution of citizenship is the inspection at the border. Because the inspection at the border also contains disciplines and normalizes your, your sort of uh, uh, passage from uh, the anarchic, dangerous, and international space into the political, the safe, and the domestic space. Um, and I want to read uh, part of the, what I wrote um, that Salter says about the border versus that of the camp. It's on page 197 for those who have. Salter's metaphor of the border immediately appeals to us as more reflective of the exclusion, exclusive inclusionary political and legal realities of the Arabs in Israel, much more so than that of the camp, which is a condition of inclusive exclusion. Existing in a permanent state of exclusive inclusion, Palestinian membership in the state of Israel through citizenship status makes their bodies into borders. They're included in the Israeli incorporation regime, but they're perpetually consigned to its peripheries. The racially hierarchical framework of the Israeli state apparatus and of its legal and political order determines that the borders of the state, its ideological and conceptual contours, and the limits of its representation and protection, they all acquire shape, in the case of Israel, from the Palestinian citizenry. And in performing the boundaries of the state of Israel, Arab citizens reproduce the sovereignty of that state. And thereby, they also reproduce their own placement in an indefinite state of exclusive inclusion. So overall, the paradigm of stateless citizenship and this first pillar of exclusive inclusion, which I go through, pushes us to begin our analysis from the condition of Arabs with Israeli citizenship. And when we do this, we realize but the problem is not only the racialized structures of Zionism. It's not only all of these discriminatory laws or racist laws that are specifically targeting all spheres of Arab life. 
from budget and economic uh, sort of access and, and rights to land rights to freedom of expression. All of these rights, the freedom to boycott, the freedom to even ask for equality under the law. All of these rights that are specifically targeting the community. That is part of the problem, but the problem actually extends from these racialized structures of Zionism to the ways that the existing relations of exclusion in citizenship that exist in other states are actually employed, reversed, and enhanced in the case of Israel. So what Israel is guilty of in this sense is not uh, something different than other states, but what um, necessarily in the sense that its citizenship regime is exclusive or exclusionary. All citizenship regimes are. What, what is unique to the case of Israel is that it enhances and reverses those relations of exclusion, so that once you enter, you lose. Now the second pillar that I point to, and one that enables this reversal of the classical relation of exception in citizenship, um, is what I call the permanent state of uh, emergency, and this is not a term that's unique to me. The status of stateless citizenship and all of the mechanisms of exclusive inclusion that we explain in the text would not be possible without a conceptual and practical state of emergency. Now on the basis of the emergency regulations that Israel inherited from the British colonial order, it declared an emergency situation, as many of you know, immediately following the 1948 establishment of the state. From the formation of the state in 48 until 67, and in fact many of these structures maintained until 69, the mil a military administration or military government was formed, and it was formed um, explicitly to control and isolate the Arab population. In fact, Chaim Weizmann declared that there's a big problem now that we have these Arabs who remained, what to do with the Arabs who remain? I mean, part of the idea was to create a government to isolate them. And I think this emergency situation is exactly what formed the framework within which Arab citizenship was to be constructed in the, Jewish, in the new state. To put this differently, in the very first instance, in the first moment that Palestinians who remained on their lands after 1948 were included into the regime, this first um, moment of inclusion res resulted in an immediate and simultaneous exclusion from the order of the state. At the very moment of being declared citizens of the state of Israel, they were, through and explicitly on the grounds that they were non-Jews, subjected to emergency regulations that excluded them from a whole range of legal, political, civic, economic, social, and cultural spheres. In fact, that such an emergency, uh, sort of state of emergency, continues to officially remain in force today in Israel accounts for the persistence of the exclusive inclusion of the citizenry. Given this type of continuity that we see in Israel, it's therefore important for us to understand the existing patterns of institutional and structural control in the country through this declared state of emergency as a part of a normal pattern of behavior. In an incorporation regime that's founded on the principle and, of an and on an objective of, super of Jewish superiority, and this is the foundation of the state, that there needs to be Jewish domination in all spheres of, of uh, civil life, the only normal function, so to speak, or the only normal conduct is one that is antithetical to genuine inclusion, liberal uh, democratic citizenship, and equality. 
So the state of emergency is not a temporary imperfection or a temporary limitation to Israeli democracy. In fact, as Israeli political scientist Baruch Kimmerling writes, he calls it highly indicative of the regime's nature. And for me, what's really revealing is the work of liberal Zionist scholars on this question of, of a state of emergency. Amnon uh, Rubinstein and Alexander Jakobson, they're two Israeli scholars, uh, political theorists, uh, constitutional lawyers, liberal Zionists. They wrote a very important text called Israel and the Family of Nations. And what they do in this text, which is a classical liberal Zionist project, is that they outline all of the laws that Israelists attacked for, all of the, the symbols and the values and the way that the values of the state are, are, are expressed. And they put it beside cases in Europe and North America. We have the Star of David on our flag. Well, Sweden has the cross on their flag. We say this in our Declaration of, of Independence. Well, these are all of the declarations that are just as exclusionary as we are. So in fact, Israel does belong among the family of nations. I mean, it's the biggest normalization project. And they do it very well, I'll also say. I mean, they're, they're serious scholars. So, so taking apart their argument, I, do it in, I try to do it in chapter three, um, it really takes a lot of effort. Because they have zero analysis of power, and they leave a lot of the history out. But um, they do address this question of a permanent state of emergency. And I think it's quite significant because they do it nicely in, um, within a liberal Zionist uh, framework. And I'm going to just read a short part out on page 206 at the top. They say as follows, both legally and as a matter of fact, the state of emergency is not a passing phenomenon in the context of some kind of acute crisis or actual emergency. The state of emergency is a chronic disease, which is an integral part of the state's existence, with varying degrees of severity, of course. It would be obviously wrong to tackle an emergency of this kind by applying the drastic measures to which democratic states resort to in wartime, precisely because the state of emergency in Israel is a continuous phenomenon. Now, their characterization, their very honest characterization of the state of emergency as integral, as a chronic disease, and as a continuous phenomenon is remarkably acute and candid. The stateless citizenship of Arabs in the country and the mechanisms of exclusive inclusion that I, that I tried to point to are neither incidental nor peripheral. So these are not accidental. And I think this is important. The pillars of stateless citizenship and stateless citizenship itself is as temporary as the Jewish state itself. The Israeli regime employs the state of emergency to protect and reproduce its boundaries as a Jewish state, while using the threat to these boundaries of the Jewish state as a justification for making the state of emergency permanent. Like a kind of chronic disease, as they put it, the Zionist incorporation regime needs its Palestinian citizens to exist as stateless citizens so that it can maintain the most integral part, the most important part of its self-definition and existence, namely its exclusionary fra fra framework of Jewish domination. The third and final pillar of uh, stateless citizenship, which is what I call coexistence without existence, is one that I pointed to most thoroughly uh, in, uh, on Monday's presentation. As I explained there, legally as well, as well as politically, there is no such thing as an Israeli nation. 
And I went through a famous legal case uh, in the 1970s where you had um, a group of right-wing uh, sort of Israeli members of Knesset who passed the law in the Knesset saying that in order for a child to be registered as a Jew in their ID card, both parents have to be Jewish. In response to this law, and I'm going through this again because I don't know if how many are aware of this, um, in response to this law, this legal change, a Jewish-Israeli psychologist, George Tamarin, filed a petition with the district court saying that it violates uh, his right. He wanted not to be identified as a Jewish na a nation, as part of the Jewish nation. He says, I want to be Israeli. I want to be part of, I want to have Israeli nationality. Now, when they responded to his petition, the district court said that they agreed. They said, look, you know, nationality is something private. You should be able to identify yourself. They agreed that it was invasive. But to them, to Yitzhak Shiloh, who was a district court judge, to him, it seemed an impossibility that you could have an Israeli nation as separate from a Jewish nation. So they, of, they of course, they, they rejected the petition. George Tamron took it one step higher to the Supreme Court. And there, the president of the Supreme Court, Shimon Agranat, said that to him, this seemed to be a separatist argument, that the George Cameron is, is acting at the way a separatist would do. To him, uh, creating, Agranat said, creating an Israeli uh, nationality out of a Jewish nationality, nationality is equivalent to creating something out of nothing, right? That you cannot separate Jewish from Israeli. There's no such thing as non-Jewish Israeli in this, in this sort of mindset. Um, sorry, Jewish from Israeli or Israeli from Jewish? Israeli from Jewish, sorry, yeah. Okay. Um, so the dominance of, uh, I mean, of course, when they accuse him of, of being a separatist, it's, it seems kind of outrageous to us. I mean, he's an Israeli Jew who wants the nationality of the state to which he belongs expressed. He's not creating an identity outside of an Israeli identity um, or, or um, uh, creating an identity to attach to Israeli identity. He simply wants to be called an Israeli, uh, sort of uh, part of the Israeli nation. But within the Zionist framework of inclusion, there is a separatism that you're doing. What you're doing is you're creating the possibility for non-Jews to also be Israelis. If there is a separation, even at the level of, the, of, of, of uh, sort of conceiving, at the level of the mind, to assume that non-Jews can, that there is a separation between Israeli and Jewish, is to assume that non-Jews, so non-Jewish Arabs in the country, could also be Israeli. In that sense, it is a separatist argument within the Zionist framework of inclusion. The dominance of Jewish-Israeli citizens and others who are given the status of Jewish nationality under Israeli law therefore makes Israeli nationality an impossibility. And again, this is an impossibility that has, on numerous occasions, uh, been upheld by Israeli courts. This kind of petition came up in 2003, 2008, 2010 by Arabs and Jews in the country who want an Israeli nationality. Israel remains, as far as I can tell, the only recognized state in the world whose citizens do not constitute its nationals. In other words, the Israeli people are not limited to Israeli citizens, nor are they limited to the Jewish people uh, within its territorial rule. Israel does not simply express the Jewish majority in the country, but instead the Jewish people and genera. Israeli democracy therefore invites Arab citizens to coexist with Jewish citizens as non-Jews, but not as Arabs and certainly not as indigenous Palestinians. 
while Jews are given legally enshrined rights, both as a collective and as individual citizens, Arab citizens not only lack a clear and official legal and formal status in Israel as a collective, and again, specifically as an indigenous population, but they also fail to identify with the intrinsically Jewish and Zionist values and symbols of the state at an individual level. In short, the pillar of stateless citizenship um, can be described as coexistence without existence. Palestinians are invited to coexist with Jews without actually existing as Palestinians. The dynamic of coexistence without existence that's faced by Arab citizens when placed alongside their Jewish counterparts in the state is nicely revealed in a testimony that Ben-Gurion himself makes in 1946. He appeared before the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry on Palestine, and in it, he tried to explain the main functions of the future Jewish state. And in this statement in 46, he says, we will have to treat our Arabs and other non-Jewish neighbors on the basis of absolute equality as if they were Jews, but to make every effort that they should preserve their Arab characteristics, their language, their Arab culture, their Arab religion, their Arab way of life. So treat them as with absolute equality as if they were Jews. Now this statement is also remarkably candid, remarkably honest. The rubric of reference for legal and political existence in Israel is the Jewish population. Here, the equal status of Arab citizens is always relative to the equality of Jewish citizens. Here, the category of Jewish becomes the qualified political life. And with this, the vulnerable and excluded bare life, to use Agamben's terms, begins to surface namely a subject that is neither Jewish nor qualifies to be treated as if it were Jewish. Palestinians and citizens, Palestinian citizens in Israel do not exist actually as Palestinian Arabs in the ideological and legal mindset of the state. Rather, any equal treatment of Palestinian Arabs, uh, however limited that would be, hinges on an understanding and of a conceptualization of the community, as Ben-Gurion put it, as if they were Jews both in the political and legal consciousness of the regime. This notion, therefore, lib uh, renders the liberal concept of coexistence void. Palestinians in Israel cannot coexist with Jewish citizens as if they were Palestinians. They coexist with them as if they were Jews. Yet these Arabs are not Jews, and therefore the contention that they'll be given access to rights, representation, and protection, both conceptually and practically, is unfeasible. They're included in the Zionist incorporation regime as if they were Jews, but because they are clearly not Jewish, their inclusion cannot prevent itself from becoming immediately an exclusion and forming a condition of stateless citizenship. All in all, the concept of Palestinian Arab existence as Palestinian Arabs lays outside even the most liberal Zionist conception of coexistence. Arab citizens coexist with Israeli Jews insofar as they are citizens. But their coexistence as citizens is actually, and paradoxically, premised upon their lack of existence as Palestinians in the outlook of the state. That stateless citizenship is premised on the lack of existence of this community as a distinct community, therefore has, has implications for the principles of equality and non-discrimination. 
And this is because coexistence with Israeli Jews in the absence of genuine existence renders even the principle of non-discrimination inapplicable. So we cannot talk about non-discrimination when it comes to Palestinian citizens. In the sovereign state of the Jewish people, in the absence of any constitutionally enshrined right to equality, in, in Israel, by the way, as I mentioned on Monday, there is no constitutionally enshrined right to equality. There is equality between men and women, uh, between various sectors, economic sectors. There are strong anti-discrimination laws when it comes to women and disabled people. But there's no law that says that all citizens are equal. There's a promise that's made in the Declaration of the, of the, of the State, the Declaration of Independence, but not in the form of actually constitutionally enshrined right. So in the sovereign state of the Jewish people and in the absence of a constitutionally enshrined right to equality, the discriminatory structure of the state is embedded in its laws and institutions. And so while the legal, institutional, and structural framework of the state creates far-reaching discrimination against Palestinian citizens, this kind of an effect can neither be read nor treated as discrimination in the classical way because it's built into the foundation of the state. Israel cannot act as a neutral empire between Arab and Jewish citizens. Instead, it needs coexistence without existence to maintain its exclusionary incorporation regime. Taken together, all of the three pillars of stateless citizenship, which I've gone through very quickly here, exclusive inclusion, perpetual state of emergency, and coexistence without existence, they're all necessary to maintain the, and reproduce the Jewish state. So when we're talking about challenging stateless citizenship, we're talking about challenging Jewish ascendancy in the state. We should be, we should be clear about uh, where the issues lie. The exclusions, inequalities, and violations that I outlined in the text, and some of which I touched in the previous talk, along with the kind of bizarre realizations that there is no such thing as an Israeli nation legally, these are all endemic. They're all part and parcel of the hegemonic Zionist consensus. Overall, what this analysis tries to frame and illuminate is that stateless citizenship is necessary for the maintenance of the Israeli citizenship regime. And so any opposition to or struggle against the exclusions that Palestinians face inside requires a genuine challenge to the Israeli citizenship regime itself, to its principles, policies, and practices of Jewish ascendancy. And all in all, um, it also involves a direct challenge to these pillars of stateless citizenship. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can we take some questions? If there are any. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Um, so exciting. I mean, um, it's very convincing. I have three um, small questions. Let's start with the last one, especially with your conclusion. Basically, you say that if you want to claim, well, to make claim against discrimination, discriminatory treatment, you have to question the entire nature of the system. So my question would be how, I mean, first of all, I don't know the extent to which Israel is part to a certain number of covenants or international treaties, mm -hmm. where this is basically um, principle um, that are in the text and in the law. So to which extent do you think 
there is some scope here to actually, uh, of course it's not binding, but some are more or less, uh, mm -hmm. to use like international law where discrimin well, discrimination is thrown upon against Israel. And is that tendency that you can see emerging? Um, the second question would be, um, I mean, that's a completely unique case, but do you see any other instances? That's an easy one, because I, I feel it's a neighbor. Do you see any other instances where you have this kind of explicit inclusion? Um, mm -hmm. And the, the third question would be, how in your, I mean, we've seen like a lot of um, news around, well, you have the border, but now you have the camp as well. You have the uh, Ethiopian coming to Israel, being refugees within Israel. Oh, okay. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. How does that new, oh, I mean, would you say it's new first, but how would you see this uh, refugee camp uh, down in the, uh, at the border in the Negev fit into the broader picture um, uh, of your uh, citizenship regime? Mm -hmm. Like, we have, like, sort of normal exclusionary citizenship overlapping with the... Uh, yeah. The one you're describing. yeah um, should I do one by one? Um, okay, I've tried to answer them. The first with the international conventions, a lot of the reason why Israel has the anti-discrimination uh, legislation that it does now is because it, it wants to be um, following the kind of you know universal declaration of human rights, these kinds of uh, statements that it's um, uh, signing to, or the rights of the child, for instance. Um, um, I'll also say that, but, but of course, I mean, when it comes to the rights of minorities, or the rights of indigenous, so the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous and Minorities, this is not something that Israel has signed on to. Um, and even if it did, the issue is also that, when I mentioned this a bit in the previous talk, for the for Palestinian community inside Israel, at least the organized parts of this community, it's a real question of whether or not to push forward the minority group categorization versus the indigenous, because they are versus very much legal. Um, uh, and also to say, that, okay, if we in 48 say are gonna go for the an indigenous status, then what will that do in relation to the rest of the Palestinian nation? I mean, are we, are we creating some kinds of separations here? So far, when you look at the declaration, you see it's quite difficult to place Palestinian citizens within an indigenous uh, framework, mainly, I'll say, because of the lack of access to land. Cultivation of the land is a, is a major part of being defined as an indigenous population. And you would say, well, there is a land regime, there's, this, there's a system of exclusion that prevents people from harvesting and accessing their lands. Uh, but, you know, by now, so many generations, does it make more sense to organize as a minority group to get access, you know, to these international conventions on minority rights, uh, principle of equality, these kinds of things, or should we still push for the indigenous? I, I mean, these are really these are real discussions that groups are having in Adala, um, and Adala itself, I'll say, as a legal center, is pushing forward the minority groups discourse. I mean, it is a legal center for Arab minority rights, even in its name, right? Um, so yeah, when Adala takes forward, uh, uh, takes Israel to, to court and takes Israel to UN human rights councils, if, when it comes to say religious discrimination, you know, discrimination against access to religious sites or, or the, the failure of the state to protect and preserve uh, religious sites, it does, to, it does so through international conventions that states are responsible for taking care of their minority groups. 
at the same time, Israel being recognized as a democracy makes it difficult for the minority groups within it to um, take it to court, say, or take it to the court of international opinion. Because democracies are supposed to take care of their minorities. Right? They're supposed to be, as a democratic state, they're supposed to be civic institutions that you can access. Uh, which is why, in a lot of ways, the Palestinian community inside, they, on the one hand, when you're forced or you're, you want to be recognized as a national group, demographic minority, but as a national group, well, if you are recognized as a minority group, you also you know, lose access to that international arena because, as a democracy, Israel is supposed to take care of its minority group. So it's, you know, you're supposed to go through local uh, channels. Yeah. yeah, but you can exhaust them. You have to exhaust them. Yeah, you have. To, yeah, you can exhaust them. You have to exhaust them. But uh, in the end, I mean, the the international conventions that they would that they would go to would be very much to put local pressure. It, it's not that the, these international bodies would be able to put enough local pressure to get Israel to move on, say, protecting uh, religious sites, which was a, which was a, a major report that Adala would do some some years ago. Right? It would be um, go through the local means, and, and for the most part, Israel will will you know at the level of the Supreme Court until recently they would agree. Yes, we need to take care of the citizenry. Yes, we need to you know we, it is a uh, discrimination in the area of uh, economy, for instance. Many are living getting paid below poverty. They're not represented in high academic positions. They're not represented in major corporations. They'll agree, but then you know there there's a limit to the channels that you can access because of this sort of this setup. Civic institutions in Israel are not accessible to you. Um, the example that I gave in the talk on Monday was uh, members of the Knesset. When you get voted in, new members of the Knesset have to swear an oath to the state of Israel, which was amended in 2009. Now it's no longer I swear you know, an oath as a member of Knesset to be loyal to the state. It's loyal to the state as a Jewish, Zionist, and democratic state. This is the actual wording. And to the values and symbols of the state, be they Jewish or Zionist. So before you enter the, the sort of the civic institution, so that you can challenge it, before you can access the Knesset, as an Arab member of Knesset, as all member of Knessets do, you have to swear an oath to the state as the very you know features that you want to eradicate, you want to challenge. Before the protest is heard, it automatically renders itself void, right? So there is, I mean. Um, the levels of inaccessibility in Israeli civil institutions make it difficult uh, to, to, to really plead to, to international conventions in a way that's effective. But it's not to say that people don't. People are lawyers are constantly doing this in 48. Other instances of exclusive inclusion, I, I talk about it in the text a bit, um, but I, um, I, think of I think of the Canadian model, so the Canadian treatment of indigenous populations and the ways that they sort of incorporate them within, within the Canadian state. In the case of Canada, First Nations, so the indigenous population, have their own indigenous status. They're not Canadian citizens. So in that sense, they're not, they don't have stateless citizenship, exclusive inclusion. But this indigenous native status is something that is very much managed and created by the Canadian state. Um, and all the privileges that come with native status, like not paying taxes, free education, um, these are all privileges that the Canadian state provides and, and controls the provision of. Um, but I'm sure, I think there, there, we can say that there are other instances. Um, I will also say that the, when I look at the indigenous community in North America, as far as I know, um, from my interactions with, with a native activist, um, Aboriginal activist, the 
the struggle is not for statehood, right? So it's not, we say statelessness, but, but the struggle is not to create a state, right? It's to have a self-determination as indigenous communities, not to create an indigenous state of the Anishinaabe or the Mohawk or whatever. So, in, so that even the nature of the struggle is different. I mean, we, it's clearly an indigenous population here in Palestine, but the struggle is not the way the indigenous struggle would be in, in uh, Canada or the US or Australia. You know? Um, uh, and the refugee camps in the Negev, this is uh, in the, at the end of the book when I pose three questions. One of them has to do with this, how to understand Israel's treatment of sort of incoming migrants that are not Jewish but also not Arab. Uh, so they don't really fit into this, uh, this classical uh, conflict. Where do we put them? This, now we have to create a new category. Um, how to understand these camps as an extension of the exclusion. So the reason why we have such extreme you know, racism, violent racism against Ethiopian, so, you know, uh, Somalian uh, uh, migrants who come to Israel cannot be separated from the anti-Arab racism that the state already has. It's actually an extension of it. Um, so in order to make sense of that, and you have many liberal Zionist activists who are only working on this issue of refugee camps in the Negev and separating it completely from Israel's colonial history, from Israel's colonial context. You cannot separate the settler colonial project from the hatred towards these refugees. Because in the same way, and perhaps the refugees are less threatening because they don't actually have a claim, right? Palestinians have a claim. Um, in the same way, they are an existential threat to the state of Israel, right? Um, as I talked about it on Monday, uh, demographobia, fear of non-Jewish births, right, is part and parcel of its self-definition. We need to have a Jewish majority so that we can have a Jewish state. And so in that same way, the camps in the Negev fit very much into this relation of exception because they're an existential threat to the state. Yeah, I don't know if I answered the question. <laughs> Has the research been challenged yet from the other side? The other side? Whoever the other side may be. Has anyone um, documented a, a counter argument? Yeah, so um, uh, Rubinstein and Jakobson, I got a letter saying that they're going to write a response to my, my, my critique of them in chapter three. I haven't seen the response yet. Uh, a challenge, yeah, I mean, uh, Mainly internally. I mean, when I presented it in Haifa at Madal Carmel, this was these are among colleagues whose most of whose research I'm even using uh, and citing. So um, <coughs> uh, the the challenge has been well, uh, what 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 does this mean then in terms of how we're organizing? Because I think, as I mentioned um, to you before we started. The, the latest major contribution to the discourse on Palestinian citizenship in Israel was uh, Citizens Without Citizenship, this model, right, that, that Nimr Sultani and Nadim Ruhana built. And it was very effective. But then to, to say that, okay, they're not citizens without citizenship. Actually, they're citizens with citizenship, and that's the, that's the problem, that they're using citizenship to, to give you this sort of exclusive inclusionary um, uh, setup. Um, that, that then changes it, because then we're not only looking at all of the citizenship rights that are changing, that, are, that we don't have, it's actually something more than that. Even if they give us all of these rights, there's something fundamentally wrong. We're still excluded at the level of identification, at the level of representation and protection. Um, so in that sense, I mean, that was sort of a, a conflict of, so then what does this mean for the work we're doing? But it came from allies, from friends, so it wasn't a... Um, I think when I present this tomorrow in Jerusalem, I'll have more 
uh, Where? at uh, the French Institute. And there'll be more of a, a broader present. It'll be sort of a book launch and a broader presentation of the argument. Mm -hmm. um, and it's on Israeli Independence Day. Mm -hmm. oh, exactly. <laughs> I don't think people will come. For you, that. So maybe that will be. Have you updated the argument? Can in, I? In a, in a format of an op-ed where it gets more broader. Coverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did for yeah Journal of Refugee Studies. Two thousand nine. Two thousand nine, and then I, I did a reprint of it after the. Uh, it's coming out as a reprint as mm -hmm. a with an edition on the on political participation mm -hmm. after the election. This year would be. No, I don't know. I mean, this is not what I'm interested in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so far, I haven't had... I mean, in Canada, we have... Look, when I did the book launch in Canada, you have the typical sort of Hasbara, uh, you know, Zionists showing up and saying, you are basically challenging the... the you, do you believe in the state of Israel as a Jewish state? Are you challenging That's a shallow reply. And then, yeah. but, but, but I think it's actually, again, as I said, it's important to be clear and honest about this. Mm -hmm. If a Jewish state... If we okay, if we the ideal whatever model two state whatever solution, if a Jewish state means stateless citizenship for its Palestinian citizens, then no, that's something we should oppose too. If a two state solution is a Jewish state on one side that has these layers of exclusion, that is something that we need to oppose. So, I mean, in that sense, I need to be very clear. Yes, we are. We need to challenge the foundations and the exclusive, exclusive self understanding and self identity of the state of Israel as a Jewish state. Because because of that, you have these sort of layers of exclusion that manifest in very real uh, ways. Um, so in that sense, I mean, those are the kinds of challenges, but nothing, nothing risky. They would probably um, have some echo in the, in the uh, well, U.S. You say Canadian, but in the U.S. Uh, I don't know. Do you know the Canadian? The Cana Canada now is much more uh, right wing than the it's U.S. Changed. Uh, it's changed much more, because and it's the U.S. are very much opposed to the Jewish characterization of Israel. For sure, but uh, but it's much more volatile in Canada now than it is in the U.S. I mean, the Jewish National Fund moved their headquarters to Alberta yeah, that's, because it pays for the Zionists now. Sympathetic people from the Jewish um, community. That's exactly what I meant. I have many sympathetic people from the Jewish community. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, right? But it's, uh, but yeah, in the, the Canadian case, is very uh, uh, violent now. There's a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll introduce myself to say that I'm a historian, and uh, I deal a lot with the uh, status of the Palestinians in Israel, but as a historian and not uh, as a theoretician, say, social or political theory. But uh, I was very happy to read your uh, chapter. I actually was thrilled to read it, and even <laughs> I talked about it with my friend, uh, Ahmad. Uh, but for the sake of discussion, I, I do have some minor uh, uh, comments and some others. Uh, the minor things uh, that you mentioned, and you mentioned now, for instance, that the Palestinians in Israel are 20%, and I know that many scholars say that, but it's not true. The Palestinians as citizens of Israel are only 17%. When you say 20, that includes the residents of East Jerusalem. Which, who are included in the demography of Israel. And we have to be a little bit uh, you know, cautious about this. Uh, some other minor issues that you mentioned also in your article, uh, that, that mandatory uh, military service is only on Jews, but there are Druze also, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, <coughs> the military service. So from those minor uh, 
things, I, I want to move to some major questions. Uh, what, I mean, after giving all the good uh, <laughs> things about the, the book, the book, I mean, I didn't read the book, I, I would love to buy it and uh, read it, uh, the article, uh, then there are some th a few things missing. One of them, major, is the Palestinians as agents and not only as subjects to the policy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I found it m missing there, in, in, in both in the, what we heard from you here today and in the chapter that I read. Maybe you deal with it in other chapters, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, because that makes a difference sometimes, uh, which is connected to also to another point, which is anchoring theory with practice, with what's happening on the ground. And I, I find it's also a little bit missing, maybe because I'm a historian. I, I look for you know, the hard data supporting, anchoring what you are saying in theory. And here, the theory sometimes make them, you know, it's easier for, for it's good, it's black and white. It's here and there. It's Jews and non-Jews. It's Jews and a, a Palestinians as two groups. However, when we mention the Druze, for instance, they don't. Most of them, they don't say that they are Palestinian Arabs. Mm -hmm. Now, today, they, they think they are a separate yeah. national group, and they are Druze. And they behave differently from other Palestinians, both in elections and in their life, military service, you name it. And you can find also some other cases not as clear as the Druze, like, I mean, cases which either strengthen or should strengthen your theory, or you have to deal with it in order to not allow people like Rubinstein and others say, hey, but look, you speak in theory, you are in the sky, you are not on the ground, you don't know what's happening on the ground. For instance, uh, the, something that supports your theory, the uh, unrecognized villages in the Negev. You mentioned the camp before that, but there are 40 or something uh, unrecognized villages in the Negev. This is much more than stateless citizenship. I mean, this is, it is basically human rights are not there, not only citizen rights. Um, you have the present absentees since 48. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the Bedouins, some of them in the north in particular, are serving in the army. They volunteer. They, they are not, uh, I mean, they, they don't have to, but they volunteer. And lately there are some Christians who also mm -hmm. try to separate the Christians from the rest of the Palestinians in Israel, Nadaf, Khalul, and others. Probably you know the names. Um, so this is concerning the, the current situation. But historically speaking, and I'm, I'm, I'm a historian and just finished a book called Catastrophe and, and Survival, mm -hmm. the story of Palestinians in Israel, 1948-56. It will be published, I hope, soon. But this is history, you know. But uh, good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's history that was, was not written, yeah. I mean, particularly about this period, as you know. Uh, now, concerning that being agent, to begin with, in 47, the United Nations voted for two states, one Jewish and one Arab. So, so, so Israel was established as a Jewish state 
okay, there are conditions there, and I know what's, uh, what's written there in the United Nations resolution. However, it's from there that the Israelis, the Jewish, People are saying with with the stem, the um, you know the say Sharai the legitimacy. Yeah, the legitimacy for Israel as a Jewish state and state for the Jewish people. They say what we want, and those people who continue to support two-state solution, which was <coughs> in the beginning supported mainly by the communists, but later on others, including the PLO. They actually, in one way or another, they are supporting the current situation in Israel and the continuous discrimination of the Palestinians, and you said it toward the end of the... So, so the, the NLF, the, the National Liberation Front, in 48, you know, voluntarily, they supported, okay, voluntarily, because Stalin said that this is the right thing to do, okay, you know. But, party line, the party line. Yeah, yeah, so, but it took them three months until they decided to do that. I mean, only in February, 48, they decided to support, there was a split there and so on. But also in 54, when Israel, uh, you see that I'm speaking about my book in one way or another, uh, when Israel uh, decided to make a military service compulsory for Palestinian citizens too, most of the Palestinians, but mainly the communists, said, yes, we want to be loyal citizens to Israel, go and, and serve in the army. And thousands of uh, young men went to the offices and registered for, but then the government, found out that it will be difficult for continuing the discrimination. Though, from the case of the Druze, we can see that they are serving in the army, but they are not equal citizens in Israel. So those are more or less the questions, things that I wanted to comment about. May I add a category to add this question? The refugees outside of 48, do you address them in the citizenship paradigm? Well, I mean, as I said, they their statelessness in the text, or at least the way I treat them in the text, is different than the statelessness of Palestinians inside. They have a the exclusive inclusion, inclusive exclusion. There, there would be a strict exclusion, right? Um, in the previous talk, I went through the different parts of the Palestinian community, which again maybe would have been um, answering some of what you said, what you asked, um, uh, to show the layers of exclusion that exist until we get to the the ones who are inside, who have citizenship, who have access. So yeah, I do address them, but. But their model would be the classical model of exclusion, not this reverse. Um, may, may I just add one sentence here? Yeah, for <laughs> yeah, concerning the uh, citizenship, the stateless citizenship. I know it's it's nice. I loved it. Uh, the, the the whole analysis of the uh, the situation. However, I feel sometimes that you put heavy load on the issue of citizenship as the main reason for this inclusion exclusion because the Jerusalemites are residents, they are not citizens, yeah. but they say it's, it's worse. I'm coming from the Galilee and I'm living in East Jerusalem and when I'm in East Jerusalem, I'm more like a resident rather than a citizen in services and other in the attitude of the police, the, and whatever you have. So, so suppose that Israel didn't give us a citizenship in '48, but gave us residency, like in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Situation will be worse. 
So, I, I mean, I say that because I think that the problem stems from the nature of Israel as a Jewish state and state for the Jewish people and as a Zionist, politically, as a Zionist state, which means a settler colonial society which wants the land without the people in one way or another. So the exclusion is out of the settler colonial nature of the society rather than the issue of the citizenship because if you are citizen or not citizen take the Palestinians in yeah, yeah. West Bank in Gaza you you say you speak about that so that, yeah, but, that's, but that's also what I, that's also what I, I say know, that I know not, I know I know but, that you um, say that but, but you you had me until <laughs> until you said it would be worse because it's it's true maybe it would be worse but yeah. that's as true as it is irrelevant right it, even though it would be worse we're talking about, okay, so now that this community has citizenship, and this is a community that is used to propagate this image of Israel as the only democracy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, let's talk seriously about what kind of citizenship it is. So the situation is not as bad as it could get, mm -hmm. but it's still you know, awful in all of these, in all of these ways. So, so that, that one I won't take. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. But the one, um, uh, repeatedly in the text when I talk about Palestinians, I, um, and maybe I should have, I could send you or I should also have sent chapter two, because in chapter two I talk about the Israeli incorporation regime. I look at it from before uh, the establishment of the statehood, how, how citizenship was used to control people and even the discourse of citizenship uh, for a future state. Then during uh, the military administration, how, it, how the um, military government was used to isolate pockets of Arab life to create different realities and then different loyalties also, where you have agents and then you have subjects, you know, you have people who are very much propagating the state of Israel um, as Palestinians too. Um, and then what I, where I end up at is, is the organized segments of the Palestinian community. So um, I'm even talking about, and even if you look at the research that I'm using, it's, it's of a, a part of this minority, right? It's, it's, a, it's a segment, the organized segments of the community and how they are talking about their citizenship and how they are um, uh, sort of trying to imagine uh, alternatives or challenges to the state. So not all of the members of the community are of course organized and, and many would also use the, the characterization of Arab Israeli, right? Israeli Arab. This is mm -hmm. something. Uh, the discourse of Palestinian citizen of Israel or Arab citizen of Israel. So I'm not an Israeli Arab, I'm a citizen of Israel. These are two different identities, right? This is something that is uh, becoming more and more widespread mainly since 2007, since the division documents that were released within the community. Even um, much, much earlier. I, I, I mean, maybe. I, from, from what I was able to find, the, this characterization is something that was becoming more generalized amongst the young Arab researchers and scholars that I was able to encounter for this uh, after, after those uh, documents. And even when I addressed the way that those documents were, were, were uh, published. So I started to work in 2006, and in 2007 we started the, the uh, uh, division documents. I was involved with the Haifa Declaration and Madal Carmel. And even the way that that was approached, right, you have such a diverse a series of understandings, even from the organized segments of what it means to be a citizen of Israel now. What are all the identities we have to deal with? Well, we are Palestinians, part of the Palestinian nation, we are Arabs, part of this region, and hey, we have to deal with the state of Israel as our representative uh, in this sort of legal system. Um, 
Then you have, you know, all of these contentions within the Haifa Declaration of Madal Carmel. Alongside that, you have the Future Vision document by Musawa and others, which was also very different, very different tone. Madal Carmel's document, for instance, talked about the Jewish narrative of, of, of uh, persecution, of exile, and placed it alongside the Palestinian narrative, but outside of a Zionist framework. Musawa, did, I mean, the Future Vision didn't touch it. It was more of a political mandate. And then you had the democratic constitution by Adala, which was saying, no, we need to approach this from a very legalistic perspective. We need to give the Knesset a constitution that they can, that they can look at and take seriously. So even the way of, you know, um, so okay, even if I, I mean, as I, when I address them as subjects, uh, they're also, they're not a unit. I mean, clearly, I hope I wasn't, I'm not doing this in the text where I'm treating them as sort of one cohesive unit that agree that they are excluded and that agree that they are Palestinian citizens of Israel and not Arab. Arab Israelis. I mean, it's much more uh, diverse and diffuse and multifaceted than, than that. Um, and with the question of theory and practice, uh, again, in, 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 I didn't do so much here because the, here I was trying to present more the issues that I brought up in chapter six. Um, but the way that I start the text also is by by looking at the layers of exclusion, and then once I get to Palestinian citizens or the Palestinians inside, the 48 Arabs, so to speak, then I look at the pockets. And the Druze are, are one of the communities that I look at in chapter two. Mm. Um, I don't know if I address all of the things that you that you mentioned, but for sure I talk about military um, as sort of participation in the military, um, uh, self-identity as, as separate from an Arab sort of self-identity. We're Druze, we're not Palestinian. Um, and also uh, from an economic perspective. So um, how uh, economically and politically they've been incorporated into the regime uh, as separate from sort of the rest of the Palestinian nation. And I think this category of um, Christians not being considered Arabs, this, the, the new law that Israel's proposing, is part of that, that same idea of sort of the divide and, mm -hmm. and conquer, which I think we would all agree. But what's interesting, I mean, when I, when I first learned this and when we were talking about this with, um, at Adala and at Mada, um, we all felt, well, you know, if this happened maybe in the 80s, then potentially it could affect. But by now, if you look at the organized segments, most of them are Palestinian Christians who are, you know, who are organizing to, to, to expect this, this part of the community to see itself separate from Palestinian Muslims now, after division documents, after all of these sort of years of exclusion, after laws that are directly targeting them as Arabs, is it's too late. You, know, you yeah. should have acted faster, so to speak. Um, uh, and what was the last thing? Israel as a Jewish state. Um, I don't remember what. That the definition, that it's not the problem of citizenship, but the problem of of the nature of the state. Yeah, for sure. But I'm, yeah, I, I agree. I agree exactly. Um, which is why I said that you know, if we're if we're going to talk about the rights of Arabs and Israel, if we're going to talk about the stateless citizenship, we, we're really talking about the foundation of the state. We're really talking about the self-definition of the state. So that the the audience of this book is not. Uh, Palestinian citizens. Mm. I'm not writing this for Palestinians inside. People know this better than me. But we read. Yeah, but you read. I mean, we're more than welcome to <laughs> read. Sure. But uh, the audience uh, was actually, I mean, I wrote this after I read uh, Rubinstein and Jakobson's book. And I thought this, I mean, some, something must be done, you know, because it, it is so easy when, when you hear liberals argue with liberal neutrality and liberal sensibility. Yes. Every, after, between every sentence, you think, wow, you missed all of this history. Or you're, 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 you're at, treating them as a minority community without asking why they are a minority or how they became a minority 
what are the, the pro politics of, and the practices of demographic engineering that's keeping them a minority. This is not addressed. It's their minority. So the democratically expressed will of the majority is to have a Jewish state. Well, of course, if you keep do demographic engineering, the majority will be Jews, and then you can make these kinds of arguments using liberal language. Um, so my response to, to that was very much this, this book, to say that, okay, even if we take the most so-called privileged part of the community, the citizens who speak Hebrew, went through the education system, pay taxes, born and raised in the Jewish state, let's look at you know, how this sort of very so-called privileged community compared to the rest of the nation is, is treated. Let's look at where they're placed, and let's look at how the state sees them. So that even to the, you know, the liberal Zionists who sees them as sort of an example of how Israel is so multicultural, da, 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 even they cannot argue that these levels of exclusions exist. And yes, okay, Israel is a, is a Jewish state that is, that is doing a lot of the violations that uh, other countries are doing. But if we, I mean, some or one or two countries will share this uh, one or two things with Israel, but to have all of these and more. So for instance, to have a citizenship regime where non-citizens of a state have more rights than citizens of a state, we don't have. Or to have a citizenship regime where you, 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 know, you have quasi-governmental institutions like the Jewish National Fund, like the Israeli Lands Administration, who have a mandate specifically to serve Jewish people everywhere. I mean, these are quasi-governmental institutions that have a mandate to serve not the citizens or the, the nation of the, the, the population that's within its territory, but on other people in general. These, alongside the fact that there is no Israeli nation, alongside this exclusive inclusion, alongside the perpetual state of emergency, we don't have an example of another country that has, again, so those layers of exclusion and all the others. So in that sense, I'm trying to say that Israel is unique not because it excludes, not because it is racist, um, but because it does that and a lot more. Mm -hmm. And it works within this package um, that fits very nicely with its colonial history. So um, you mentioned in your book also that Israel is the only nation where also, I mean, you, you spoke about it uh, here today, but the only nation where nationalism and religion are identical, fully identical, which makes difference. I mean, there is no other nation in the world, maybe the Armenians. Uh, uh, but otherwise, I mean, in order to be, even if I want to be Jewish, I have, you know, to stop being Muslim and to transform to the Jewish religion before I can become nationally yeah. Jewish. Where, and, and this is, you know, you don't have any other case in, in the world like, like we, this. I, mean, I don't know if you also focus on this. I addressed it, it a bit different. I addressed it a bit different. This is very unique. For sure. No, totally. I addressed it a bit differently. I say, well, I mean, Israel is a Jewish state, but not in the way that Sweden is a Christian state, for instance, right? Sweden is a Christian state and has Christian symbols and prioritizes Christianity, Christian spaces, holidays, symbology over all others, right? And it's a liberal democracy. In fact, one of the most progressive in the world. But it doesn't have something that says, you know, the majority of the population have to be Christian in order for this to be a Christian state. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have this enshrined as it a It doesn't practice. pretend to be the state of all the Christian all the world either. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Is what exactly. Well, this there is a question here. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, it's, a, it's a play on the same thing that Professor Hartley said, but my uh, you put it humbly that you come from uh, history uh, as a field, but 
I'm, I'm coming from theory as a field. Okay. I'm not a historian, but I see the problem with pointedness, and I want to reformulate it in a different way. Um, the problem with any person who wants to deal with theory, trying to make it fit the reality and read the practical situation or political situation, is that there'll be plenty of examples to counter what you're trying to say, and there'll be plenty of examples that will support you. There is a degree of selectivity in which example you choose. Uh, and, um, and this is, I think, the, we go into the examples that Professor Adi was giving you about, okay, what would you do with the Bedouins in Naka? What would you do in the unrecognized villages? How would you treat the Jews? Because these are all examples that will challenge the theory. Uh, and, and they are val all valid, because if you want to do a comprehensive theory about the exclusion and discrimination, then you have to counter for all the examples that have been excluded. You cannot select and pick and choose. Um, as well as in the literature you read. Uh, you gave a quotation from Ben-Gurion, I'll give you a different quotation from Ben-Gurion. He said Arabic, Jewish land on Jewish, you know, Jewish people on Jewish land. And that came when you want to build the settlements, when you want to build the economy, when he was uh, asked about how you address, and I don't have the proper quotation, I'm not prepared, but uh, when asked to address the economy, when asked to address how we deal with the Palestinians or with the Arab population, uh, and he said, okay, well, this is a Jewish land, and then we have Jewish labor, so the priority will be that. Uh, there's other literature within the Zionists, which I'm, I'm sure the audience here also, as you are, well familiar, familiar with, uh, that says, if they behave in certain conditions, we'll take them in. If they don't, then they have to learn who is the master here. Jupitinsky uh, is a case in point. So that having agreed that the difficulty of theory uh, comes from the level of practical exclusions. But my problem is with the different uh, notion, with the different, with your definition of exclusion, with the layers that you put there. When uh, Professor Adler is saying there's a colonial aspect, this is a very important aspect, and it's uh, not only uh, counters the because. Let's take the example you gave of the border. Jordan has a border. Egypt has a border. Sweden has a border, and it operates in the same way. It says if you have a certain passport, you have a certain visa, you have more access. If you're a European citizen, then you have more access to Sweden than if you're a Palestinian applying for a visa. So the, the levels and degrees of discrimination based, let's say, on the example of, of borders will not take you very far. Uh, the, the problem I think that you have uh, to see is that if you're trying to justify discrimination, if you just, uh, is that it's not alone. The if you're trying to what, sorry? If, if you're trying to argue for the discriminatory levels that exist within the state of Israel, that discrimination is not, um, is a symptom. Yeah. It's, it's, not the, um, it's not the core issue. Uh, the, and the, um, it's a system not only of colonialism, it's a system of an ideology, it's a system of epistemological position that says I am not only better than you, and I am self-entitled. There's an epistemic uh, uh, notion within uh, Zionism that allows for not only discrimination legally, but allows for also all the exclusion from historical, geographical, whatever facts that exist on the ground to uh, create and, su and sub-treat. Mm -hmm. For example, Bedouins do not deserve laboratories. I will not build it for them. They are not entitled to any help. Uh, 
the, the degrees of the, what you refer to as degrees of discrimination in, in the circles of discrimination, it comes from the same epistemic notion, uh, but it differs. I'm going to create the Bedouins because they, they are the nomadic, they are the epic, that they represent for the state of Israel the stereotype of what I want the people to think of a Palestinian, so I will not include them. The people who live in the city because they look a little bit more civilized. Uh, so you have to dig deeper than the, the degrees of uh, and the levels of discrimination. You have to go to the epistemic notion of how the state of Israel defines other citizens, not only in the definition it gives itself. And I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but the case of the border alone is not going to uh, build it, it will not uh, make your theory solid. Yeah. Uh, if, um, for example, uh, why are black, the, when you take the refugee as an example, you're taking also color as a factor. You're taking not only religion, because of Jews, Christians, Arabs, uh, and, and it's the same. If, if you can't see all these common factors, then discrimination alone will not hold. I'm sorry. No, no, it's good. Uh, but I think, I mean, some of what you said, I think I was, okay. I was doing. Maybe not as well, but <laughs> I think, and I think I, I do it also in the text. I mean, I think I said it, but I'll, but I'll say it again. I mean, it's not about the the principle of equality or discrimination doesn't doesn't hold within us within this kind of system to say that this is a discriminatory law. Mm -hmm. This is the foundation of the state. Mm -hmm. And I'll and I'll give an example. Um, part of what I'm doing is working on these cases that we're going to take to the ICC, the International Criminal Court. And what's terrifying Israel is not not so much what they did in Gaza that's terrifying them, because they already started the investigations and they're finishing the investigations like you won't believe how quickly. Uh, what's terrifying them more is that now the West Bank mm -hmm. and Jerusalem are, are, are part of the mandate of the ICC to investigate. And how can they do an investigation of settlements, of population transfer in Jerusalem, when it's part of official government policy? You would be investigating official government policy, right? So they cannot have a national a domestic investigation, which means that we have to have an, an international uh, uh, investigation. The purpose of a body like the ICC is to be complementary, to complement national investigations. Israel cannot conduct such an investigation in the West Bank, Gaza, around settlements, the wall, access to water, population transport, right? So this is what, I mean, it's part of the practice. It's, it's part of the, 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 um, the fabric of the state that we can have very open discussions on you know, talk shows about should we have Arabs serve on the national football team or not? I mean, what does it mean? This means that it's, it's actually an extension of, of the, of the self-definition, self-understanding of the body of the, of, the, of the nation and how it works. Um, the thing with the Druze, I mean, again, as I said in, in the second chapter, I go through the levels of exclusion that exist within even the citizenry of Israel. And, but even with the Druze, if we look, they are, we can say, more included than other parts of the Palestinians. They're more included than, say, the, the Bedouin. In this sense, I mean, like they're, they're way more. Even the way they see themselves, economically, the way that they're established, uh, but still, I mean, at the level of um, uh, as a collective, they have this recognition, right? And at the level of the individu individual, as non-Jews, you don't identify with the Jewish and Zionist symbols of the Jewish symbols of the state. 
Um, so yes, there are levels of inclusion and exclusion, but the way that the state of Israel treats the subjects between the river and the sea is from the lens of Jewish or non-Jewish. And then from that lens, there are these different layers of inclusion, one of which uses the tools and discourses and the practices of citizenship. And that's really, it's a very humble contribution. That's, that's what I'm trying to, to look at. And in nowhere in the text do I separate that from the colonial context. I mean, we have to understand the citizenship as a, as a colonial citizenship really, as a citizenship that is entrenched in its colonial history. And I, um, I think and I hope that I address that in the, in the text. Um, again, not so much in this presentation because it's about a specific chapter. Um, and then what was, there was something else you said that I feel I may have missed. Oh, the, bo the border. I'm sorry. Um, what I was saying with the border was to try to, I mean, there, there are, there's a big, there's a lot of discourse on this, right? On the way that the border is performed, citizens have to perform it. What I was trying to say is that even when you are, again, like in your home, speaking Hebrew, da 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 da, uh, paying taxes, went through the education system, can vote for government, you're the most sort of integrated. You're still performing the border of the state. You are still, I mean, that exclusion still exists. If you are not Jewish in within this sort of incorporation regime. You are you um, your bodies, as I said. I use Mark Salter's work in the short part. Right, your body performs the boundaries of 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 state of membership. Your body performs the boundaries of Israel's self identity. So so again, even the the, the population that liberal Zionists repeatedly refer to, the seventeen percent. Um, uh, they uh, they themselves just by by existing and by functioning as non-Jews within this this regime they are they are performing the boundaries of the state. So yeah, the state of Israel doesn't have borders because its borders are moving with, with the people somehow. You know, um, that's sort of the image. And the reason why I felt the border was more uh, appropriate than the camp is because for me, the, I mean, I think that for most of us, the camp is that strict exclusion, right? It is the uh, it is the inclusive exclusion. It's included by being excluded as a territorial space and also as um, uh, uh, when it comes to the self-definition of the core in relation to the, the periphery, namely the camp. Whereas the border is, becomes more more fluid. It, it sort of it, it moves in and out of the state more, and especially in a place like Israel that doesn't actually have defined, it's, it's still building its borders. Even when the border will be built, so long as you have this setup, you're still going to have people performing the border with their bodies, right? Even when we have, let's say, the wall where it says from here to here is, our, is where our state is, our state now looks like this, you're still going to have the borders of the state moving with, with non-Jews living within the citizenship regime. That's, that's sort of what I was trying to communicate. Uh, I have some more questions. I mean, I would have some comments. Uh, I mean, close to what has been said. But I, I, I just want to to ask you something. I saw in the chapter two, which I really would like to read. I'll send you the, yeah, the PDFs. Uh, Don't yeah. buy the book. I'll send the um, I saw that you make a. Read um, please. You make a point on the issue of apartheid. Could you, could you please tell us more how you uh, tackle the issue of apartheid in this context? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know which part you I read. You, 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 you talk about chapter two. You, you tell me to make sure how I. Beyond, you said that it's beyond apartheid. How, how do you, just I want to understand how you how you treat this. Oh, issue okay. Because I think what I was doing was using um, McAllister. Um, 
and I was using it to show that, I mean, it was, I was part of making the argument of the need to treat this as one geographic unit. Um, so that uh, when I talk about the Israeli incorporation regime, I'm not talking about 48 or only 67 or Jerusalem or Gaza, right? I'm treating it as an entire, as an entire body, and so as an entire body with layers of, of separation. Um, uh, and then also I, I emphasize the need to use, use the, the term apartheid, despite sort of the, the loaded um, history, because apartheid, I mean, even especially legally, it is, a, it is not... It is a historical moment. You have South African apartheid, capital A, mm -hmm. but then as a as a practice, it is a crime that any government can can commit. Um, and in the case of Israel, the um, I use apartheid mainly to uh, to again to show the need to understand the the layers of exclusion, not as ones that are limited to spaces that are specifically outside of the wall or between the wall that are not even that are not limited to a specific place. Mm -hmm between the river and the sea, right? It is, it is one unit um, uh, that is facing one uh, uh, sort of one sovereign. And the, the case here is that we have one economy, we have one government, one army, but two sets of laws for two different people. Um, and, and that's sort of, that's, that's from what I can remember off the top of my head because I haven't looked at it in a few months, um, that's sort of the extent to which I was, I was bringing it in. Um, again, when I was using McAllister, it was the need to treat it as, as one unit, sort of as, as this entire map, right? Um, uh, as one body. I don't know if I answered that. I'm sure there's, I, I believe there's more in there, but I cannot remember it off the top of my head. May I add two minor comments? Um, one is concerning history. Uh, I mean, once again, it, it could help even uh, your argument. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, if you deal with it, it's better than, than uh, you know, not talking about it at all. Uh, until '56, at least, uh, Israel tried uh, hard to get rid of the Palestinians in Israel. And there are, were different plans. They, they did uh, uh, expel, to my knowledge, about 20,000 Palestinians, at least between 48 and 56, you know, in, in mass, not as individuals, like in Ashkelon, Majd al in the north, in Hula, two villages of Krad al-Baqara, Krad al-Ghanami, uh, and in, in several other places, in addition to, from my village, for instance, in 49, they expelled 500, 531 people by the army. It's, it's not during the war, it's after the war, and so on and so forth. So, so the historization in this case that, okay, even when we speak about military government, the military government of the first decade is different yeah. from the second decade. And after 66, the same coexistence, existence, or emergency laws, or the, the usage of it, it's there, okay, but the, the use of those emergency laws is much less. So, so yeah, you say it's there from 48 until today. However, there are yes. some differences, which is important, because otherwise Rubinstein and others will come and say, okay, you are there in the, in the, in the, in the theory, we are on the ground, we know what the reality, you don't mention this, you don't mention that, you don't know that Israel today is much better 
okay then it was in the 50s and 60s so it's a process it takes time that's what they are telling us 67 years it takes time but in the end of the day and when we solve the conflict with the Palestinians you will have full equality rights it's because of the conflict and the emergency laws are because of the conflict and so on and so forth so so it's, it's better to deal with those issues that the other side may raise rather than yeah. not speaking about it. Uh, I think but that's actually not what they're saying. They're saying it's, it's, it's part of the nature of the regime to have these emergency laws. And they never, not once in the text today or in any of their writings, have they promised equality. They're not promising it at all. They're trying to explain they why. They say that in the Declaration of Independence Day, they promised civil equality. They, they do, but they also say that it's not a constitutionally enshrined right, which means yeah, that you cannot. That's uh, true. Uh, but what, but, but just to um, to finish, they, the the project, what they do actually is is um, detached from the ground. What they do is that they're very attached to what's happening on the ground in Europe and in the West, but they're detached from what's happening on the ground here. Which is why I said that they don't have an analysis of history and they don't have analysis of power, mm. because the moment you ask a question again, like how did they become minorities, the the setup falls apart. No, they say um, that there was a war, we defended ourselves, seven Arab countries, this is the, you know, this, this is the Zionist narrative. Seven Arab countries, though only four Arab countries uh, participate in the war in one way or another, but they say seven Arab countries, you know, attacked us, we defended to, ourselves, but, and then the Palestinians left. But that would be as to why they are a demographic minority, them as a minority group, as mm. separate from an indigenous group, is not something that they can explain, right? How, why are you calling them a minority? Well, because they're demographic minority. Because this okay. is Jewish state, and the United Nations uh, gave us the, the legitimacy for Jewish state, and the majority are Jews, the majority are Jews, and those are minority, they are non-Jews. A demographic minority, but you can be a demographic yeah, yeah. minority yeah, I'm, I'm and still be... I'm trying to protect no, Israel. No, I know, I know, <laughs> but I'm saying you can be a demographic minority and still be an indigenous population. The, the native population in Canada is demographically a minority population, but it has indigenous status. And with that comes yeah, a different set of rights. exterminated most of the... For sure, indigenous. and, in, and, and I mean, here they didn't exterminate most of the Palestinians. This is the big difference exactly, exactly. between Australia, Very New Zealand, Canada, and other places, and this settler colonial society, which continues settler colonialism. I mean, you speak about Israel per se as if it's separate from the West Bank, and the, the whole theory here is a little, bit, a little bit. I mean, at least in this chapter five, mm. uh, it's it's a little bit separated from. I know uh, you mentioned that you speak from about Palestine, from the river to the sea, yeah. but but in the in the in the chapter, you feel that you analyze Israel as an entity, you know, with borders, uh, with 67 as different from 48. But I know okay. that's not what uh, you do um, in the whole book. And the, just one sen more sentence concerning the border, uh, something which could strengthen your point. You know, when I go to the airport in Bengorion, I hold an Israeli passport, but they behave to me as a foreigner. Yeah. I am checked there, they unclothe me or my wife, and the issue of the body and the border, as if I am a foreigner. I mean, in every other country in the world, if you hold the passport of the country, they behave to you, you know, as a citizen. And here, they remind us when we leave the country and when we come in, uh, on borders, both in Bengorion, if I go to Sinai or to Jordan, whatever, as foreigners. As a guest. 
No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not as, as foreigners, as tourists. I mean, no, as tourists, because they don't do that with tourists. Yeah. They do okay. many times. They do many times. They do many times. But I mean, not all tourists, not all suspect tourists. Yeah. Yeah. And so we are suspect, <laughs> suspect, <laughs> suspect <laughs> foreigners. But this is also, I mean, for me, look, in, in the States, if you're a Muslim and you hold American citizenship, you are also going to be questioned and interrogated, even if you hold American citizenship. For me, what speaks more clearly was the was the, the example I gave on Monday when you have on election day uh, Netanyahu saying the right-wing government is in danger, the Arab voters are coming out in masses. Mm. I mean, in what other recognized liberal yeah. democracy would you have a prime minister saying, the citizens are voting, <laughs> you should be worried. I mean, that's, he's saying Arab voters, registered <laughs> citizens are voting. Mm. And this is a concern. So that was the most honest account that they, they're not part of the Israeli public. Mm. Yeah. You know, they are, I mean, for me, that was more speaking than the experience of the border. And also to go back to um, Rubenstein and Jakobson, the reason why they would treat Palestinians inside as a minority demographically um, and not as a minority group, as, like as a nation, as a collective, is because that allows them not to talk about them as an indigenous status, as indigenous, mm. uh, indigenous population. It allows them to, again, not have this analysis of history of power. They don't see Israel as a colonial project. So let's talk about them as a minority group demographically so that we can then talk about majority rule as a demographic democratic principle and the need to follow the will of the majority without asking why they are a majority or how they became a majority or whatever. But I mean this is all, uh, I'm taking all of these as uh, comments from colleagues, from allies, so don't, sure. please don't hesitate, <laughs> right? I mean I'm more than happy. I actually have a comment. Are you, are you or why are we Accepting Jewish state as if it's a defined term. Mm. Throughout your talk, the Jewish yeah. state, as if it's defined, even yeah, yeah. in 181, it wasn't defined. Mm. Nor would, I think a case can be made in front of Jews that this has no relationship to Jewish values and so forth. Yeah. Is that a weakness in our argument that we have accepted that as a term? Even though it's being defined today by right-wing government and yeah. one can question it. I mean, what's interesting is that even though the, the definition of the state of Israel itself is continuously contested, its definition as a Jewish state is is not has not been, and what's in, and so any kind of all the campaigns in the Israeli public and in the Knesset to rename the state, so not as a state of the Jewish people, but as a state of all its citizens, or as a state of there was a proposal as a state of the Jewish people and its uh, Arab citizens, right? Um, these are repeatedly. Uh, you know, push down. So even if we want to change the definition of Israel from a liberal democracy to more of a socialist model, to more, you know, all of these other models, economic, social, cultural, mm -hmm. the definition of it as a Jewish state is something that's has been con consistent. But, but 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 yeah, but and which is where the potential power comes yes. for struggle, right? Yes, I mean, exactly. I have a colleague who's doing excellent research on what a Jewish state means from a Palestinian citizen perspective and from a Jewish citizen perspective. This is the topic. And it's and oftentimes they're, you know, going in but even if you do it from within the Jewish citizenry, you would still get this kind of right, because they they're also they're also living under um, areas of exclusion. It's a worthy fault line to discuss. But it's a good uh, it's a good point. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you so much.